Heavy Cardboard, episode 132, Reef Encounter. Coming to you from the New England Aquarium in Boston, Massachusetts, and... Dayton, Ohio. Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics to the board game hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Edward. And I'm Zach. All right. Welcome to the show, Zach. Tell folks a little bit about yourself. I'm Zach. I live in Dayton. Uh, I play board games pretty regularly. We have a pretty good scene over here, which is surprising to most people being in, you know, not a huge city, but we have a really nice store. So I get to play two to three times a week. We have a night dedicated just to 18xx. So it's a pretty good time over here. So in the game store, it's dedicated to 18xx? No, 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 at a, at a buddy's house, but still we have regularly. That would have been awfully know. impressive. You got it. Man, I, that I, would have I, been cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Um, so how big is your game group? Tell folks a little bit about your game group. Um, so regularly on the Wednesday night group that I kind of help facilitate, we have anywhere between four and nine people show up, uh, the game store, their game or their game nights on Thursday, usually around 30 people show up and 18 XX night anywhere from three to six people. All right. Nice. That sounds like a pretty solid group there in Dayton. Yeah. And I know that, uh, I know that clay, uh, from capstone games, he used to live in Dayton. I think he moved a little bit closer to Cincinnati recently. But, okay. Uh, but yeah, he was he was in your neck of the woods there, and uh, also as a Cincinnati Reds fan, uh, oh, absolutely, you guys, you guys are home of the Dayton Dragons, which is fifth third field, which I've heard is one of the nicest minor league ballparks in the country. Well, I've never been to any other minor league baseball park, but it is pretty nice. It's not bad. Yeah, it's uh, and I know they have the uh, record for most consecutive sellouts in North America, something like four hundred and or eight hundred or a really big number, nonetheless. Some, some, yeah, some weird number where you know who knows how they pull that off every year, but they do. Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. And again, I'm I know this because I follow the uh, I follow the Reds minor leaguers because mm. I'm a big Reds fan, so that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I'm I, sorry. Uh, no, hey, there's a lot of reasons to be excited. I, you know, it's true. There, I have, I still have hope for this season. It may be, it may be Maybe. slim hope, but I still have hope. And for next year, having picked up Trevor Bauer and everything, I, I, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited. Well, that's good. So, what got you into the hobby to begin with, Zach? Um, well, uh, I was a Boy Scout growing up through middle school, high school, and uh, we would have uh, an outing where we had very little to do because we were just there to like go to a toboggan outdoor facility. So that only took up like two hours of our time. So the rest of the weekend, we just did whatever. And uh, one of the adult leaders brought hive and the resistance and all this other stuff so i played that i'm like well this is pretty fun i like you know interacting with other people and i was never good at video games really ever still not (laughs) so it's a fun way to like hang out with my friends and you know yell at people so it was a good time and then like an idiot i looked on board game geek and at the time i'm like oh well the number one game must be the best game ever and at the time it was twilight struggle same yes first game i bought with my own money had no idea how to play it None of my friends ever wanted to play it with me. But then from then on, I was like, well, this is like the standard of game that I'm used to now. So just from there is history. So uh, when did you get into the hobby? I'm curious. 
Um, let's see. That would have been my sophomore, junior year of high school. So quick math, like six, seven years ago. Okay. So you and I actually got into the hobby about the same time, even though I'm, uh, you know, a couple days older than you are, but just a uh, few. Yeah. Just, just, a, just a few. So nice. So what are yeah. some of your favorite games? Um, well, right now, my favorite game of all time is Root. I think it's just a brilliant design, and I love everything that Cole does. I have all of his games now, but uh, that one, Roads and Boats, is a favorite, favorite of mine. A lot of the splatters, 18xx, of course, uh, Age of Steam, stuff like that. Oh, good stuff. All right. Yeah. Well, this, yeah. this is going to be a lot of fun today. I'm looking forward oh, to this. So. so what else has been going on with you? Uh, well, just got back from Gen Con uh, this past weekend, which was a blast. It was my second time going. It was crowded and crazy, and I barely got to play any games, but it was cool just to see everything and uh, demoed City of the Big Shoulders twice. It was so good I had to go back and try it again and pick that up and a few other games that we'll talk about later. But it's just the the spectacle of it all to go to Gen Con and look at everything was, was pretty great. That's a really good description of Gen Con because it really is a spectacle because it's not just Board games you got magic the gathering you got a ton of cosplay you have rpgs you got basically everything geekdom is basically gen con all rolled into one yeah it's pretty awesome all right and uh you're going back to school soon yeah well uh, my the school that i teach starts back up soon yeah you're good that's what i meant right that's fine. You're, i'm you're young not that young but yes <laughs> fair enough uh so anything else though uh did you enjoy gen con in gen oh yeah it's a blast it was a blast just hanging out downtown indy is fun and you know having good food having good whiskey is good time <laughs> nice yeah uh, so anyway, what's been going on with you? Well, other than uh, finding out I have a fractured ankle. So uh, like two and a half. Well, no, I guess now uh, actually as of yesterday, three weeks ago, uh, we were heading up to Maine for a weekend and uh, I rolled my ankle, rolled my ankle really badly. Um, and I was like, wow, this really hurts. And the swelling didn't go down too much, keeping it elevated the whole nine yards, hobbling <laughs> around Maine and uh, come to find out. Went into the VA, got some x-rays done, and they called me back, said, yeah, you fractured your ankle. Oh, okay. Well, thankfully, at least uh, Martin and Cindy had a walking boot for me to wear because I, I had an ace bandage and that was it. So I've been wearing that. And then my buddy Derek actually has a walking boot that actually fits. So I've been wearing that. But the, I don't know if you want to call this funny or sad or some mix of all of them. But the day I, the day after I got my x-ray done and I found out that I had a fractured ankle, the podiatrist from the VA called and the guy the, or the clerk in the office said, yeah, hey, so we, we got your referral about your fractured ankle. We can get you in in three weeks. <laughs> and I was like, does that seem okay to you? <laughs> and the guy's like, man, I'm just a clerk at the office. I said, I appreciate that. Don't get me wrong. I said, but your average like broken bone tends to heal in, I don't know, call it four to eight weeks. So it's been a couple weeks and now you're going to, you're telling me the best you can do is three weeks out. So what am I supposed to do in the meantime? And he's like, 
I don't know. And I'm like, well, I, I, and so I'm on the phone. I'm at, I'm, this is literally our conversation. And I'm like, would you be okay with that? And he's like, nah, man, I wouldn't. And I said, so what would you suggest I do in this case? He said, well, let me check for any cancellations. And I kid you not, it took 20, 30 seconds. He's like, I got something a week from today. I was like, yeah. I'll take that one. That'll work. <laughs> Why wouldn't they just bring that one up in the first right? place? <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, come on, man. Just, oh, hey, there's the VA for you. So, yay. <clears throat> anyway, so uh, there's that. And then from a work side of things and show side of things, we uh, just finished while you were at Gen Con. We actually did the live streaming through Gen Con which was four and a half days of insanity, trying to stream a lot of the uh, games that we thought would be of interest to the herd and games that honestly just sounded interesting to me going through the preview list and a whole nine yards. In the weeks leading up to that, uh, we had reached out to a bunch of the publishers and said, hey, here's this idea. And they sent us a bunch of the games, including some demo onlys that we streamed, including one Actually, we're recording this on Saturday when we did last night, Crystal Palace. But we'll talk about all that uh, here in a little bit. But other than that, um, just kind of settling in and recording a bunch of stuff, but having a lot of fun. So that's about it. So what you've been playing lately, other than obviously demos of City of the Big Shoulders? Obviously. Well, um, I was lucky enough to pick up a copy of the Glory to Rome black box about nice. months. Yeah, I was pretty excited about that. So our group has just been loving that. Uh, guy loved it so much, he made his own print and play of it, even though we're in the same group. But I guess that happens a lot. So we have two copies of it now, but play that all the time. Um, we played the Sumine, which, you know, was pretty fascinating. Not all of us are trained gamers in that Wednesday night group. So getting used to that. I played Wingspan for the first time. Well, hold on. Before we move on, how, okay. how even with the non-trained gamers, how was the Sumine uh, uh, received by everybody? Because let's face it, it is quirky. It's not it, it is cube rail or cube game cube rail game yes well it was so i play a lot of train games one of the other players has played 1846 three or four times has played american rails um played railways of the world so he has like a different side of the train game perspective another guy has never played anything remotely close to the Sioux line. Oh, this, this should be interesting. Okay. Yes. All right. And and the fourth player has played, I think, Railways of the World once in 1846 once. Okay. So we had a, a wider range of perspectives on what was the right and wrong thing to do, which with a game as quirky as Sioux line, I still don't know what the right and wrong thing to do is. You and me both. <laughs> so... So the game was fascinating, and I was like, well, I think this company should do this, but I don't know. Trying to help people along a little bit because none of us really knew what was going on, but I think that just added to the, the fun and the the uh, the wonderment that is the Sioux line. So, but overall, did people enjoy their play? Oh, oh, yeah. We all wanted to play it again immediately, although time didn't allow us to do that, but we were all looking forward to play it again. Awesome. So success, I would say. Good job. Absolutely. Nice. Absolutely. So we played uh, American Rails and Wingspan, and from from the minute that our group bought Wingspan, they said, oh, 
Zach's not going to like this. Zach's not going to like us. And then every time, so we have the, for our Wednesday night, we do the, the pick list system. So like whoever's first in line picks the game we're playing that night and second in line can either choose to play that game or start their own table if we have enough people. So every okay. time weeks, every time Wingspan came up, they're like, Zach, just go to the other table. You're not going to like it. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, I kind of want to try it. They're like, we already got five people. Just go play something else. We're telling you. So I finally played it and they were right. <laughs> but it, there's you know. nothing wrong with wingspan. I think it I think it does a marvelous job at what it tries to do. Absolutely. And it's it's is, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. It, it has it, a, an engaging theme at least. I mean it's it's something different. I learned a lot playing it. Right? A uh, great production and mm -hmm. it's going to bring people into the hobby. So for what it sets out to do, I think it does a wonderful job. Absolutely. But it's also not you and I and many listening to this, although some will be, obviously, the target mm -hmm. audience for it. And that's yes. really okay. It is. Very very minimal player interaction that goes on inside the game. And that's, I think, what turned me off because I'm like, well, you have all this great engine stuff going and there's nothing that I can do to stop you. So you've pretty much won the game from here on out, even though I was the person that won the game. But anyway, and, beside uh, the point. And, and on that, the the. And the, the last round or two, it, it kind of felt like very non-decision decisions to where, mm -hmm. oh, hey, I'm going to throw eggs down on these so I yep. can get points. And so I it's not without fault, but I also think that they're, it's done a very good job, like I said, of bringing people into the hobby. And man, it sure is pretty. I will say Absolutely. That. Absolutely. And on the complete flip side of that, we played Dominant Species a few weeks ago. Uh. Oh, yes, so yes, good. absolutely, which is the opposite of no player interaction. But uh, we, we all had a good time. Some players did uh, not like how harsh it could be. I think we taught two new people. We had a full six-player game, which, you know, five that's or six. That's rough yeah. for new players to have yes. that many because it can be very chaotic. There's no mm -hmm. doubt. Yeah. And learning when to maybe pull back and when to speciate and all of those things decided by what cards are available and mm -hmm. what are your priorities that can be that can be harsh uh but man does dominant species hold a special place in my heart absolutely uh from the train game side like 18xx we played uh the new 1822 mexico one of the guys in our group picked up the prototype of that i think that might be my favorite of the 22 series okay. i played oh go ahead oh sorry i played uh so they have the original 1822 set in you know all of england they have 22 medium regional scenario which is kind of chunks off kind of the what I call the crappy parts of that board and supposed to make a shorter game out of that. And they have 1822 Canada, which takes 22 and adds way too much to it, in my opinion. Some people like it a lot, but uh, that's just me. And then they have 1822 Mexico, which all aboard just put out the prototype copies of. And I think they're going to do a full production of that within a year or two. So why would you say that the 1822 Mexico is your favorite iteration of all of those? So with 22 Mexico, the board is tighter, but it still plays the full complement of players. So it feels like 22, like if you're playing a three-player game of 22 Mexico, it kind of feels like a four or five-player game of regular 22, at least in the, the, the game that we played. So you make money a little bit faster because the higher-valued cities are closer together. So the game goes a little quicker. You see the same kind of things you see in 22 with the auctions and everything else, but it all happens at a bit of a 
quicker pace than, okay, well, let's run these miners again. All right, I made this much again, and we're just going to go through the whole slog and all that over and over again. That I kind of feel 22 kind of falls in the same pattern over and over again. And in my opinion, the normal 22 has some companies that are just far and away better than the other ones. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. And I think Simon Cutforth also came out as like, well, you know, we have the LBSCR and you have the the other really good companies. And then you have, you know, the crappy companies up north like the Caledonia and the NER that just are, are great second companies possibly. But, right. But not, yeah. not starting companies. Right. Absolutely. So I'm curious, which do you have a favorite uh, either uh, 18XX title or a side of it, whether it be more operations or more uh, financier side well, of things? I flip back and forth between which style I like the most, but my favorite game by far is 1817. Okay. Oh, all right. Which is the granddaddy of the financier side of things. Oh, abs- absolutely. That game is just the, the destruction that could happen to one or two people is just beautiful. Like we were playing at Origins, and I, you came up and I think saw us playing, but we had one guy that had a 10 share. And he had sold eight of the shares into the pool, and we have shorted it 10 times. There was 18 pieces of paper of one company in the bank pool. So every stock round, his stock price was going to fall 18 boxes. It's just, it's beautiful when that happens. As long as it's, you're not the person it's happening to. But even oh, so, absolutely. he took it like a champ. He did. He, he really did. That, did. That's uh, it's Dean, fellow patron of yes. Heavy Cardboard. Yeah. <laughs> Dean, Dean's good people, and he, he took it very, very well. He knew he, did. he was in trouble, and uh, <laughs> it was it was fun to watch, but uh, yeah, he was a good sport about it. So yes, he was. Yeah, but eighteen seventeen definitely up there. I, I love 46. There's that constant argument that's saying that it's you know, not actually a good starter game because of all the weird stuff that it changes. But I always love playing 46. I've probably played it about 40 times now and every game has been different. That's why I love the stream that you guys did with the uh, the three pros of 1846. Oh, yeah, with and, Eric and Joe. And yeah. Mike. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are. Uh, I, I, I was a bit intimidated, but at the same time. The guys are such nice guys and they're such mm-hmm. good people that it was actually really pleasant and it was it was actually really easy going. And yeah, I think it it did a really good job of showing that game and showing what both what it can be as far as both from a speed perspective without being pushing things to where you feel rushed, mm-hmm. but also just showing just that even though these guys have a literally a couple hundred plays plus of this game, they're still interesting meaningful decisions that can be made in that game even having played it that many times oh yeah absolutely and uh an 18xx game that i think doesn't get enough love but is one of my personal favorites is uh, 18 ny set in the whole state of new york i have it and i i think i've only played the prototype of it i don't think i've gotten it back to the table in years so why why 18 ny so you have uh, 6167, you know, the Canada or Russia, we'll flip that around. And then uh, that has the National Railroad that forms after a certain time and it absorbs all the miners if they don't have a train. And eventually, at the end of those games, you're like, man, I wish I could invest in the Russian or the Canadian because it's doing so well. Well, in 18NY, somebody actually owns that National Railroad, which ends up being the New York Central, which is historically my favorite railroad. So this game being based around that is pretty cool. Nice. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you can invest in that railroad and somebody becomes the president of it based on whoever has the most shares like normal but it just has a lot of really weird things that I think are awesome like the the dit whistle stop towns can upgrade 
upgrade to normal cities. It has hex trains, which I are, always have a uh, preference towards hex trains because I just like the way that that works. Um, just mechanically. The, yeah, mechanically, I think it's really cool because you can line up a bunch of cities next to each other where normally in XX games that's not good to line up all those dits or not as strong towns, but in Hex Trains you don't really care. You're going the same distance anyway. Um, it has you know the 5DE, which is your best five city doubles, or a diesel, which just picks up everything, and you have to do some math to figure out which one's the best for what you have. Um, the private powers are really cool. It, it, there's just a lot of really weird and cool things in that game that I think that uh, it should be talked about more often. Well, it sounds like we might have to have you back on for a couple of these. Oh, of course. What about you? What have you? Yeah, what have you been playing lately? Well, uh, basically, it's the the live streaming through Gen Con is what I've been playing, uh, which is a ton of games, which is awesome. Um, but it's also a ton of games. So I'm, I'll go through them relatively quickly. But uh, And I'll do these kind of chronologically in the order in which we streamed them. But we also had some plays of these around this to get ready for these. But Beta Colony from uh, Matt Riddle and Ben Pinchback. Uh, kind of an overlooked game. It, uh, space theme, which very pasted on. Very uh, transparent theme. Uh, but some pretty cool area majority and interactions between the two sides of the board um was it my favorite of all time no was it a solid game yeah enjoyed it so there's that then we played ecos first continent from john d claire now i've never played anything from john he he's designed mystic veil vale. he's designed uh, edge of darkness uh and this was kind of a like a tableau builder uh i've heard that it's a mix of a couple of other games that i was unfamiliar with but it it was it was pretty simple, but it was it was really fun to be able to get some really cool tile or card combos would be a good mm. way to describe it. Um, enjoyable little midweight euro, so that was good. Silver and gold, a flipping right, I guess you would call it, uh, with a very very light uh, pirate theme to it. I'll be honest, not my favorite of the the bunch. Other people, however, Jess, Chris, and some others that have played it absolutely love this game. So mm. maybe I'm the odd duck in that. But So do you like flipping right, rolling right games um, or anything like that? Well, Welcome to, I enjoyed. Uh, okay. I think that's, that's pretty clever. Uh, but to me, it's just, I don't know. This one just didn't appeal to me. I, I don't think there was enough there, which mm -hmm. that's a fine line to walk, right? For a game yeah. that is supposed to be this kind of simple filler type game, you know, end of the night type thing. You don't want too much because then it becomes kind of convoluted, which there's one that is kind of Tetris PC. Oh, uh, bricks. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, which I can't stand because that way <laughs> overstay uh, over, uh, overstays its its welcome at the table and it's just way too much for what it is in mm -hmm. my opinion whereas this silver and gold feels like not enough i mm. think and it's just i don't know it's fine but like i said there are others that i played with that absolutely love it for what it is so take yeah for what it's worth uh then we have the deluvia project which this one came as a big surprise to me which I don't know. I, I wish I could tell you why, but when I first played De the original Deluvia project a few years ago when it first came out from Spielworks, I was really underwhelmed by it. 
And then we got it back to the table, which again, the first edition, because the second edition from Tasty Mistral hadn't arrived yet. And then I did an unboxing comparison between the two uh, uh, editions and minor changes. But I will say overall improvements across the board in the Tasty, the new edition. If you have the first edition, zero reason to get the second. If you don't have the first edition, there's damn good reason to get the second because when I played this, I was really enthralled with this game. I really enjoyed the Deluvia project far more than I remember enjoying it the first time. It's a worker placement with a really cool kind of auction, not really auction, more bidding, almost a kind of a area control bidding type mechanism in that when at the beginning of the round you're going to put your airship out into this little market and it's a, a either a four by four or five by five grid and you're going to claim uh control kind of of one row or one column of those tiles and these tiles are all rule breakers or bonuses or mm -hmm. like you get some amount of resource or so or in game scoring or something like that but the cool thing about it is you claim that row or column Sort of. Nobody else can uh, claim it can be opposite you. So you, they could be at a 90 degree angle from you to where one of those tiles, depending on turn order, they might be able to purchase before you. But if they do so, you get a discount or a rebate for having less uh, options to choose what to purchase. Mm. Interesting. And it really is. That, that kind of feels... Not disconnected, but it feels like it's taken a worker placement game and added some something that feels familiar, but that doesn't normally go together. And it works really, really well. And the other aspect of the worker placement aspect of the game is you have just discs of two different colors. You have, I think it's five or six normally of your main discs. And then you have it like a supervisor or like a super disc. And that super disc, when you place it, if you were the first to place in certain area uh, in one of the worker placement areas, uh, you get an extra bonus for having placed your super disc in there. And you some locations you only need to place one, other locations you place multiple, depending on do you want multiple resources, do you want extra money, whatever. And then it's all about a kind of a uh, building up the board you're building up the sky city and where you can place it has to be adjacent to where you've placed before but there are ways to kind of uh teleport by buying fans over in different parts of the board to where you can build up in different areas and then there's adjacency rules and adjacency scoring at the end of the game so in the end it turned out to be a really damn good game and I was trying to think back why I didn't like it when I originally played this uh, once or twice when it first came out. But um, yeah, fast forward to 2019. Uh, pleasantly surprised with the Deluvia project. Mm. I'll check that one out. Definitely recommend it. Uh, then we played Watergate, which is kind of a, a two-player take on the Twilight Struggle not theme, but kind of style of game in mm -hmm. which, you know, in, in the different, the main difference, obviously it's a much smaller scope and a much quicker game in the whole nine yards. But the difference, the main difference between something like a Twilight Struggle and Watergate is in Twilight Struggle, you're playing from a shared deck of cards, whereas in Watergate, 
uh, Nixon has his own deck of cards and the media or the, the editor of mm. uh, the Washington Post has their own deck of cards and you're alternating playing cards. You're either playing it for what is commonly known as the command value, you know, in the top left-hand corner or the mm -hmm. event. And Nixon is trying to survive to the end of his term. Uh, and it's a tug of war on a few different uh, things between um, initiative, which gets you extra cards. There's a tug of war on the, I forget what they're called, but they're little discs, which if Nixon acquires five of them throughout the game, he makes it to the end of his turn and wins. Uh, whereas the other thing is our pieces of evidence of Watergate. And if the, uh, if the editor is able to get a couple of the key people involved and be able to trace evidence from them to the president over on kind of a uh, like a path building uh, side of the board, then the editor wins. So plays in, I don't know, 45 minutes or so and does a really good job. It's it's not at all similar in gameplay to a game like High Treason, uh, The Trial of Louis Real or 13 Days, although that one is probably closer than not to Watergate. But if you mm -hmm. like that type of game, Watergate did an excellent job of being tense, being fun, and coming down to those last-ditch moments of the game, who's going to win it, and that, that, that tension in the game. It does a really good job of that. Hmm. Sounds like it has less luck than some of the other ones that have like dice rolling in them. Because I know um, Twilight Struggle has dice rolling or 18 or not 1860, 1960 of the cube pulls kind of randomizes things. It sounds like it's less because the, the evidence like there's three different colors and the evidence can only go on matching color. But some of the evidence has multicolor so you can put it in different locations. So there's mm. a little bit of it, but it doesn't at no point did I feel like, oh, bad draws or good draws one way or the other impacted it but there's also the drawing of the deck so you know if that's a true. timely draw happens there's that but that's always going to be a part of that style of game yeah but overall yeah really enjoyed Watergate and I don't want to give away how that ended in case anybody wants to watch it definitely a good watch in my opinion uh, then we played Be Lives I think it's Be Lives not Be Lives the subtitle is We Will Only Know Summer uh, Matt Shoemaker is the designer and publisher of the game. And I kind of known about this game for the last year and a half, two years or so. And it's about the life of a bee. And it does a very good job of bringing that into a gameable format. And it's actually a really good, really enjoyable uh, kind of worker placement. Um, action selection might be a better way to put it. Uh, action selection game. Where the game kind of trips on itself a little bit is in the raiding. Raiding as in going out and raiding other players' mm. hives. The reason I say that is there are player hives, and then when your hive gets either too populated or too full, it then swarms and goes out and forms neutral hives. It kind of breaks off from your hive and the other players' hives and makes these neutral hives. Well... This is where the problem kind of it lies is there are player hives and there are neutral hives and then players can attack players and players can attack neutrals. Neutrals can attack players and neutrals can attack neutrals. And each of those raids or combat, think of it, have different 
rules associated mm. with it. And there is a flow chart that actually does a very good job of, okay, so is it player versus player? Is it player versus hive or vice versa or whatever? And you follow this flow chart and it does a very good job of explaining it. But it can get bogged down a bit in that. And so hoping that a better player aid comes out for that, because I think if the game does end up with that, it's actually going to be a, a quiet little hit uh, on his hands from that. So, so there nice. you go. So be lives. Then uh, Black Angel, which was kind of one of the big, big box or one of the big buzz games of Gen Con. Uh, dice drafting uh, game that kind of I've heard takes Trois and kind of pairs it up with Solenia and hmm. makes its own game. I haven't played Solenia and I really dislike Trois. I also really dislike Trois. However, I actually really enjoyed uh, Black Angel. Okay. However, on the uh, uh, on the other side of it, and Ian O'Toole did a really good job of bringing color into space, like a space game. Normally, you know, it's real black, real blue, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, this is a fuchsia angel. It it's a lot of fuchsia, and it's wow. When you look at it, you're like, wow, that wow. However, it works. It actually is really pretty. It it works really well. The game does get a little. There's a lot of steps in certain actions and the game can stumble on itself a little bit but overall i would have to say uh top five game out of gen con for me oh wow okay uh because there's also city of the big shoulders and pipeline which we stream both of those pipeline we did two player city of the big shoulders we did four player um and all I can say is Chris was quite the trooper through City of the Big Shoulders. <laughs> yes, he was. To understand that. Uh, but um, it, it, even so, it didn't go very well for Chris. But even so, he's still excited to play it again. But I honestly, I think those were the top two games you can make a case for out of Gen Con. Uh, then there was a game called Dark Domains, which worker placement uh, with a... A dark fantasy theme in which every all the players are evil <laughs> and you're trying to uh, spread evil amongst the world and you're fighting off uh, uh, adventurers so it kind of flips the typical theme on its head uh, enjoyable and fun as long as you go into it with the understanding that you need to be nasty to one another mm. and as long as you go into it with that type of mentality it's actually a really fun game then the last two that I'll talk about, Shobu, first off. So Shobu, super simple. Like if you were to make this game yourself, you could do so with a line in the sand. Like literally, I'm not exaggerating. You could play this on the beach with a handful of rocks and a stick to draw or in your finger to draw some lines in the sand. Not exaggerating. Mm -hmm. However, the production quality in Shobu is phenomenal, but the game... It's a simple little two-player abstract that is amazing. It is really simple. The goal of the game, and I, I think it's four four-by-four uh, boards separated in between by a piece of rope. So I have two a light board and a dark board on my side, and you have a light board and a dark board on your side. And on your side of each of the boards are four rocks in your color, light or dark, on each side of my or on my side of each of the boards four rocks goal of the game knock the other players rocks off 
And to do so, you can move a rock one or two position or one or two places in any direction. And the only rule is the first one has to be on one of the boards on your side of the rope. And then the other move, and that cannot be an aggressive move, meaning you can't move pieces and knock off your opponent's pieces. The second move is the aggressive move has to be on the opposite color. So if it's a light board, you have to do it on a dark board or vice versa. And it must mirror identically the move that you just did in the first one. So if you move forward one space, you have to move forward one space on the opposite color board. Simple enough. You can push a single stone in one direction and you can move backwards. It's 360 degrees, one or two spaces. And it becomes very, I don't know, You, I, I haven't played Go, but kind of chess-like, kind of Othello-like, kind of that type of game. But you're playing on four different boards and really, really clever. Very simple design, but man, really well done. Um, Shobu definitely can recommend that to just about anybody out there. So there's that. Very cool. And the last game. And the only reason this wasn't higher is because we got this on Wednesday of Gen Con, sent to the house, and I told Clay and the folks at Fearline Spiele, sorry, the schedule is pretty much booked. We're not going to be able to get to this until next week. And that is Crystal Palace. When I saw a picture of Crystal Palace and I just heard that it's kind of a dice set, you dice as workers and you set them at their own whatever, you, you, you choose what value they have. And I saw a picture of it and I was just like very intrigued by this game. Well, it comes with a 23-page uh, rule book thereabouts. Mm, and mm. so when I looked at that, I was like, yeah, we're not going to be able to shoehorn this in during the live streaming through Gen Con, so we'll do it the following week. Well, we did it last night, and we had played it a couple times prior leading up to that. First off, the rule book, I'm not going to say that it can't be better, but if every rule book was as good as the one in Crystal Palace, the world would be a much better place. <laughs> this is one of the best rule books I've read. Legit. Wow. Uh, the graphic design of Crystal Palace is fantastic as well. So two high marks going into that for learning the game. But the game itself, it's a worker placement dice as workers. But where the hook is on this game is, like I said, you set your dice to whatever value you want to set them to. So if you want, you start with four workers or four dice. If you want to set them all at sixes, that's fine. You can do so but you have to pay $1 for each pip. Mm. So not only are you worried about your personal economy and how much money management, but then the places out there in the various places around the board, and the, the theme on this is you're working up towards the 1851 First World's Fair, and you represent different countries, and so you're going out there to get resources and to hire people and to have the coolest stuff for your country when it's ready to present in 1851. Game plays over five rounds, but each of the locations, uh, which are individual boards based on player count, so like a two-side or a two-player game will be on this side, you flip it over, and the three-player side has more spaces, and the four and five-player are different, et cetera, et cetera. So it's eight different locations in this, but each of the locations 
the minimum value of the dice and there might be two, three, four, five spaces for dice to be able to go out there and they range from one to five. So the minimum location or minimum pip value of a location might have like two ones, a two, a three, and a four. And so it, you could put like a four on a minimum one location. That's legit, no problem. But you might end up activating later than other players if you do so, but you might block them from placing lower pip value dice. So when you're going through and you're setting the value of your dice in secret, you're not only worried about how much money you're going to be able to spend now, but you also may have to spend by placing some of the dice into locations that cost money. Then you're going to have some upkeep costs and all of that. So not only are you taking that those things into consideration, you're also worried about what are other people's motivations and what are they looking to do? And not just that, but then once everyone reveals and pays for their stuff, now it's a not really a race, but it's kind of a chess match as to where do I have to go early to be able to go to activate this space early enough? But where can I wait? And where do I think I can maybe slip in a lower value die to be able to maximize that I think will be available that other people aren't going to go to? And so you're playing the players as much as the game. Mm -hmm. Really clever dice placements set your dice to whatever value you want game. And it is... It, it can be very mean. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. And ours was. And I would have to put this as one of, one of my favorite games that I've played in 2019. Oh, wow. So Crystal Palace, it's not going to be coming out until Thanksgiving timeframe. So around winter, you know, November, December timeframe from Fearland Spiele across the pond, which I think it's going to be open for pre-order soon. And then soon thereafter, around that timeframe from Capstone here in the States. And yeah, legitimately, I mean, obviously there's City of the Big Shoulders, there's Pipeline, there's PAX Premier Second Edition, uh, but Crystal Palace is right there in the running with that. And it is brutal and tense and stressful and hard in all the ways that I like games. Crystal Palace, definitely one of the most exciting games I've played this year. Wow. Well, you've definitely turned me on to some of those games that I hadn't really thought much of before this. I didn't expect to go on that long about this, but it's been a lot of games, so I guess yeah. that, right? Yeah. All right, so that's what we've been playing. Uh, anything you acquired recently? Yeah, so I stumbled upon an auction on BGG where this guy was doing a huge purge of his collection, and he had a copy of the first edition like 1984 D-Mocker in oh, German. I've never played that. I have the second and third edition and soon to the fourth, but I've never, mm -hmm. I've heard it's completely different. I know. I, I've heard that too. It only plays four people. The The artwork is pretty different. And I know that it just plays differently than all the other ones. And I got it for what I thought was a pretty reasonable price. Uh, I just thought it would be cool. Even if I never play it, it's a, it's an important piece of heavy gaming history that I, that I finally own now. Spoken like a true collector. All right, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, Gen Con, I picked up a lot of the new stuff. City of the Big Shoulders, which if I'm being 100% honest, when I first heard of the game, I wanted nothing to do with it. Really? Was, Why? Why? Really? Because you heard 18xx meets Art Reich or, or Arkwright or something along that or what? Well, yeah, partly that because when I think of, okay, we're going to play an 18xx Euro game, I think I'd rather just play an 18xx game. Fair point. 
And then I met Raymond Chandler at Origins, and I saw it being played, and I'm like, all right, I need to look into this a little bit more. Watched some videos, watched your guys' first live stream, and then I checked it out at Gen Con, and then I was like, yep, this is way more than I thought it was going to be just and an 18 XX. a second time, apparently. I, I was so good, I had to go back again and do the same demo. And I sat down, I'm like, I'm going to do something completely different than the last time. And I was, it was, it's pretty different. I am now very excited to play it again. It is so much more than just an 18 XX Euro game. It really is. But, and yeah. I, I mean, obviously, there's no map, there's no tile lane, there's no track lane, there's none of that. But you do have an aspect of it. And in the the advanced game, there's, you know, hostile takeovers of companies. There's the dumping of companies. Um, So, yeah, there's definitely more stock manipulation in that game as you explore it more available to players if they choose to. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot to like in that game. Yeah, so I, I acquired that. I picked up Hats, which is a smaller card game, two to four people. Uh, played that a couple of times. I found it, I only played it at two players. It was really cool, too. I'm excited to try it at four because you play it in teams instead. Um, the new Sashi and Sashi game in front of elevators, which is a really weird theme, I guess, in Japan. Being in line for elevators at department stores is a really big deal. So you're trying to manipulate your family members to be in different positions in line in front of these different elevators and score accordingly. I I don't know. Uh, They've made um, Take the A Chord, which is one of my favorite trick-taking games. And they made Coffee Roaster, which is one of my favorite solo games. So I picked that up. Haven't played that one yet. Um, That that, that theme is just... Yeah. I I love quirk. I love weird. And um, that checks that that box. So that sounds really interesting. Absolutely. Uh, Carl Chuddock had a new prototype of a game, kind of, but sold it at GenCon for a GNC. He had, like, I don't know, like 100 copies or something, and I picked that up, too. I haven't played it yet. What I didn't expect was it came with a, a little token inside, and it said, send this back when the game comes out, and we'll give you a complimentary copy of the full game. So I'll oh, have nice. the yeah, so I'll have the prototype, quote-unquote, version and the real version. One of, um, one of the guys in our local group uh, Andrew actually uh, got a copy of it and he's going to be bringing it to a game day soon and we might be able to stream the prototype of that so I'm looking forward to checking that out because if it's yeah. Carl Chuddick I'm, I'm interested by default absolutely uh, I picked up Hearts and Minds, which is a two-player war game. I kind of, the different years that I've been in the hobby, I'd have like a different theme of each year. And this year, I'm trying to get more into war gaming. So I picked up uh, Sekigahara and Hearts and Minds, and I've been getting more into the coin games. I'm trying to broaden my horizons, I guess, so to speak, of the different aspects of gaming. Are you enjoying that that uh, delve into war gaming? I, you know, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know about a lot of things, gaming included. So like the more war games I look into, the more I realize how vast the world of war games there is and how there's just so many different titles and systems and the and, whole com- and the the thing for me that I love about war games is it helps me learn about history and gets me interested in parts of history and, and time periods and conflicts and all of that that surround some of these events that it works both ways, both getting into war games and getting me interested in the history and the history getting me interested in the war games that try to simulate that the conflicts. 
Yeah, so I'm excited to play that one. Um, picked up some Age of Steam maps. I got uh, the Eastern U.S. and Canada. I guess it's a it's a winsome expansion of the Rust Belt map. So you bring out your Rust Belt map, and then you fold open this other map, and you kind of line it up side by side. Uh, so I got that. I got the Soviet Union, and I can't remember what's on the back side of that. I just got a, some guy on eBay has been selling off a lot of really rare Age of Steam maps, so I've been picking up those. Nice. Yeah, you so never have too many Age of Steam maps. Oh, no. Says the no. guy who has a few. Yes. A, a few. <laughs> almost too many. Not quite too many, Not but quite. almost. Yeah. Uh, so that's about it from the acquisitions. Uh, what about you? Uh, well, actually, not a lot other than obviously all of the, the aforementioned games for the live streaming through Gen Con. But uh, I got a package today from the folks at Board and Dice to get ready for a couple of upcoming uh, live streams. Uh, we I finally got a production copy of the Teo expansion. So we oh, had, nice. we've had the prototype since March. But we haven't had the actual one, so that was nice. But the other two of interest are got a prototype of the Deluxe Master set of Yido, mm. which another worker placement that uh, is really mean. The original edition is really mean, and I know this uh, this adds some stuff to it, so we're going to be showing that off on the show, uh, I think, later on next week. And then the game that I spoke about both on the podcast as well as over on the YouTube channel uh, about coming out of Gamma was, and I'm going to tr probably butcher this, but uh, Trismegistus, the ultimate formula. So the theme is basically, uh, oh shoot, what do you call it when you, uh, transmuting. Thank you. That's it. You're welcome. Transmuting stuff. Uh, fantasy kind of type theme from Daniel Tassini. And when we played it, it was like uh, clip art and just very, you know, very prototypey. And this is an advanced copy that we got that we're going to be showing off uh, sometime next month uh, on the show. So I'm really excited about that because when we played it, uh, both Jess and I were like, this is really good. We really enjoyed that. I mean, it was one play and it was of the prototype and a whole nine yards. But yeah, early, early indications that that uh, is going to be a... Uh, another hit for Danielle and also got the, uh, the aforementioned Deluvia project second edition finally arrived and overall really happy with the production quality on that. And they fixed a couple of errors and some uh, designer suggestions on discounts on a couple of the tiles. They changed all those over as well. So that's about it. Um, as far as on the hunting or shopping list, what you got uh, there's a couple of Kickstarters. I'm still waiting on the uh, Pax Porphyriana new quote-unquote deluxe or collector's edition. I'm waiting on that. The Root Kickstarter for the new expansion. I got to try out the new factions and the new deck of cards at Gen Con and pretty excited just for the, the whole new layer that those factions and maps and the deck add to the game. So that's going to be cool. Uh, the one Age of Steam map that I've always been hunting for and I'm never able to find is Soul Train slash Disco Inferno, and that's your guys' fault. Burn, baby, burn. Uh, well, all right, you just lost an income. Yeah, I lost okay. the point. It's not yeah. my turn. You're right. You're right. <laughs> so I'm always looking for that one and can never find it. So hopefully someday I'll, I'll have that. And uh, starting to move into 
of the more like collection side of my collecting, I'm trying to maybe one day obtain all the splatter games. Now, when I, you say all of them, do you mean all of them or do you mean all the big ones? Like, I mean, like the big five, big six, whatever you want to call it. Well, I already have all the big five. I'm I'm talking all of them: the good, the bad, the ugly, the artwork, all that of them. Seems ambitious because some I of know. those are extraordinarily hard to get a hold of. I know, but I I, I want to get that done at some point. But I I recently got um, Duck Dealer and Cons the board the scripts, stars, and film, something like that. Yeah, Cons but, is kind of like uh, Roads and Boats light. Which, which is awesome because I love Roads and Boats. That's my favorite splatter. Uh, and I'm waiting on the 20th anniversary of that coming in soon. I had to. Well, I didn't have to. I, I gave away my copy to a friend that was moving away from our game group. So I was like, well, perfect timing. A new edition's coming out anyway. I'll give him this one and wait for oh, mine. Good on you. I know. Right. I know. Nice. I'm just the best. But uh, that's about it for looking and trying to acquire. Is there anything that's still on your radar? I'll be honest, right now, no. It's it's kind of the lull before the storm for me. I mean, obviously, because I've already gotten all this stuff from Gen Con, there, there's that. Uh, other than, I mean, I'll be honest, the in front of elevators sounded kind of interesting, so there's that. But I say it's the calm before the storm, which is Essen, which is mm-hmm. going to be the big, the big, uh, big splurge or the big acquisition time. Yeah. Uh, so nothing on the direct horizon right now, but... Uh, but there's there's always some things lurking. Like I'm always kind of not seriously looking, but always kind of have an eye out for a copy of Horus. Horus. Mm. Now there's a couple of games under that name. This is the one from Theta Games that is made from their type of sandstone type things. There are not a lot of copies in the world, and when they are available, they are way too expensive for me to actually purchase. Mm-hmm. But it's still on the always on the lookout for for that. Yeah, there's that. But yeah, that's about it for me. Uh, how about uh, looking forward to playing though? Uh, well, of course, we're going to talk about it again. City of the Big Shoulders. The whole Dayton group has been excited to play that one, so we're going to hopefully bust that out soon and really have fun with that. We've been talking about getting a game of Fire in the Lake played, which has me really excited because that's my favorite coin game, and it's it's pretty epic, and I'm hoping they're up to the task, but uh, that's an awesome game. And when Roads and Boats comes in, most of our group loves that. There's a couple people that absolutely hate it so not making them play it but hopefully giving them another chance to realize how good it is well hey, it took me uh what like four plays of age of steam to actually enjoy age of steam so there exactly is, there is exactly hope. they're just misunderstood is all uh pax premier second edition we played it once um so it, it's it's hard to get a lot of games played repeatedly because of how we you know have the pick system okay you just pick to go to the back of the line and you'll have to wait two months maybe to pick the game again because we have so many people now in our rotation but hopefully we'll get some more of these games played again soon uh and pax premier second edition absolutely should be a game early and often as far as i'm concerned yeah yeah it should uh so streaming or anything like that or your game days what are you guys looking forward to playing well everything is based on the show i mean mm-hmm. I, I would love to say that it's not but no it is completely and totally except the occasional like 
you know, a two-player of PAX Premier Second Edition or Shobu or something like that with me and Jess. Uh, outside of that, it's always show-centric. So whether it's getting enough plays for the podcast or getting prepared to stream something on the YouTube channel, I did just kind of submit a long list of not brand new games to the local group to get played. Uh, so to see what kind of piques their fancy. Uh, stuff like Archipelago, Lowenhurst, Tammany Hall, Ilvecchio, A Study in Emerald, First Edition, The Capitals, mm. Rome, City of Marble, and a host of other games. I mean, we did just power through all the Gen Con releases, or at least the majority of them. So, you know, I think we can kind of throw back now to the older stuff yeah, and get through some of that. And even, I mean, I say older but there are games that came out last Essen that we haven't gotten to as well, like Forwarder of Xanadu I want to check out, or Master of Respect, or some of these games that aren't necessarily new, but they're also not older games. So there's kind of that big mix of games that, uh, depending on what everybody wants to play, as well as, honestly, what I want to play and the patrons want to see. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what's on the list. Nice. Time to dig into what some may consider Richard Breeze's best game, and that is Reef Encounter. Reef Encounter, published in 2004. That is forever ago in board game world, it feels like. Designed by Richard Breeze, artwork by Juliet Breeze in the first edition, and Mariano Ianelli of What's Your Game fame uh, in the second edition. Published by R&D Games, which is Richard Breeze's company, as well as Z-Man Games, What's Your Game, and a couple of other publishers. It plays two to four players. It says it plays in one to two hours. As far as availability and cost, well, hey, we're reviewing it. So what does that mean? It means it's out of print usually. But the good news, it can be had on the secondhand market for about 50 bucks, give or take a little bit, depending on location. And as far as plays and player counts that we've experienced, I have... I don't know, about a dozen plays, I think, overall, over the course of the last seven years or so. Mostly at three and four players, but also I have one or two at two players. How about you, Zach? Uh, yeah, I think it's about ten plays for me, mostly at three and four, just like you, and I played it a couple times at two players. All right, so you want to tell folks a little bit about Reef Encounter? Absolutely. So Reef Encounter is a stock investment slash market manipulation game that's fueled by area control. Each player controls a fish and a group of shrimp. Uh, these shrimp will help, hopefully help grow and lock down different coral reefs in the in the ocean floor. And then your fish will eat the shrimp and along with it, hopefully some of the coral to score for endgame victory points. Uh, and players can dictate which type of coral is dominant over the others to try to influence how many points that coral is worth. Kind of like you know, increasing the stock value of that color. Uh, and then their game has a few different end game triggers. And at the end, whoever has the most points worth of coral wins. Yeah, that, that I mean, that summarizes it pretty well. So uh, going over the five factors that we think contribute to a game's weight, starting off with the complexity or the rules overhead. What do you think? 
Uh, I don't think anything was too difficult in uh, learning the game for me or teaching it to new players. Uh, the actions make sense. The player rate helps with that. The pictorially, if you're if you're okay with that. The only problem that I've really encountered trying to teach the game and helping people understand is uh, when. Coral goes in front of your shield, and one coral goes behind of your shield, and what each type of coral can be spent for, whether it's in front or behind. Right. The game flows overall really easily, I would say. There are 10 options to do on your turn, which sound like a lot of options, but some are, are going to be more obvious than others as to, oh, mm -hmm. I, I'm not really going to be bothering to do that this turn type stuff. But yeah, that that it's not a hard game to under... or. It's not a hard game once you get into it, but teaching this game and actually wrapping your head around it, because ultimately it is a pretty abstract, like aesthetically pleasing mm -hmm. in that regard. But it's also it very much is an abstract game. And that point that you brought up about uh, as you acquire some coral tiles, some are going to go hidden behind your player uh, player screen. Others are going to be out in front and where they are, whether they're behind or in front, drastically changes what you can do with those tiles. So keeping that straight definitely will trip up new players and can be a sticking point for learning. But overall, the learning I feel like is hard at the beginning, but the game itself doesn't have a ton of rules complexity. So that's, that's kind of breaking that down into two different things kind of between the learning and oh hey actually it's not that bad once you get into it yeah by like turn one or two after the first people eat their first or second trip they pretty much got the idea of how the game flows right i think so and which goes in now into the 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 meat of the game if you will the the planning aspect the decision matrix the depth of the decision in this game where do you think that falls on things uh, I think that as far as planning and like forward thinking strategy, there's not too much. I think the game is mostly tactical. You're always responding to what the other players do on the different boards. Uh, but the the weight of the decisions, okay, where do I want to expand this coral to? What reef or what part of the reef do I want to make sure that I can lock down with the shrimp? Do I want to spend a tile to flip over any of the, the dominance tiles to make this coral better before I take this action? A lot of that stuff that goes into the turn that you're taking right then, I think is makes it pretty heavy on that front. I, I agree with some with the latter part of that and i feel like it's actually a i get where why you say that it's a very tactical game because absolutely you are reacting to what other players are doing and the way the board state is at a given time on this turn compared to say in a four-player game when it comes back around to me can be drastically different in that well there go those plans. Mm -hmm. Let's try for something else now. So in that regard, I do get the tactical planning of it. But there is a fair bit of strategic planning in what is ultimately the most important part of this game, which is the controlling of the dominant tiles, or as I call them, the coral strength tiles. Mm -hmm. How strong is one coral versus another coral? And being able to plan for that long term for not only what you're placing out on the boards as far as the actual tiles and the different types of, or different colors of coral, but being able to manipulate the other players and those uh, strength tiles or those control tiles, dominance tiles, 
there is a fair bit of planning involved there as well as manipulating of the other players that I think also kind of goes into that planning aspect of it and, and, and getting the players to react to you more, mm-hmm. than, uh, more than you reacting to the players. It's kind of like in boxing when you have two left-handed fighters, you're always trying to make sure that your forward foot is on the outside of the other one because it gives you a better position. Mm-hmm. Being able to do that, if you can constantly keep that forward foot outside of your opponent, you have a proverbial leg up on them. And so doing similar in this game, I think, matters. And so I tactical yet some strategic elements, but definitely this is where the weight of the game comes in for sure. Yeah, I can agree with that. And if you see a player collecting a lot of one color of coral, you know, they keep eating the same type, you can make sure that that isn't worth anything at the end of the game, planning every turn. To, yeah. Or at least yeah, try, yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. But yeah, I could agree with you on that. All right. Uh, rolling into luck and random factors in the game. Uh, the only real luck factor or randomness comes in and just the initial setup of giving you what tiles you have. And then even with that, you still get to choose what color of cubes you get, I believe, to set out those tiles. Right. So you, yep. you can you can adjust to the randomness that the game gives you at the beginning. But other than that, you randomize what the different um, the lots where you can pick up color cubes and tiles, you select those and those get random tiles, but honestly if a lot is getting too good, it's going to get picked up before your turn anyway, so by the time it gets back to you, you'll have probably a better option, and I always find myself going after the color of cube I need rather than the tiles on a lot. Yeah, and more often than not I mean, could there be some better uh, tiles on offer than uh, for a certain player consistently through the game? Theoretically, it's possible, but I don't know that I have encountered a situation where when the random draw comes up to refill a, a the lot of tiles that are on offer for you to take as your last action on a turn. At no point have I said, you know why you won this game? Because of that one. Yeah, 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 no, at no point. And there's also at the start of the game, the coral strength tiles or the dominance tiles, flipping them, uh, Mm -hmm. whether they're starfish side up or starfish side down, that's a random factor in it. But again, that's set before the game starts and everything else in regards to that is completely player driven. So yeah, I would say very little impact, even though there is that random draw of tiles. Yeah, I don't think it contributes much here at all. What about game length for you? Uh, I have never played a game that's gone longer than two hours, even including setup and teaching. I think that if you have a player that's trying to rush the game and trying to eat all their shrimp as soon as possible, which more often than not is me because I just prefer to play games that way. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm always throwing bricks in the wall and roads and boats. I'm always doing that kind of stuff. But I, I don't think the game, the, the, the box is pretty accurate where it says 60 to 120 minutes. Yeah, I, think. I think so too. Um, and it can play a little bit quicker than that uh, at the lower player count. At, at two players, it very much can play considerably quicker without having to worry about a teach. And, you know, because the turns can be very quick in a two player game with that. So, And the game plays quicker in general than you might think that it might. And like you said, it can be rushed, so it can go way shorter than that two hours. But I feel like that one to two hour range feels about right. And at no point does the game feel like it overstays. Absolutely. Uh, And as far as getting it factor? Uh, It 
may might take a new player one or two shrimp eating phases to really understand, okay, well, I'm going to lose the first four. So I want to build a reef to be about this big so I can make sure I capitalize. But after they see that happen or after they see how the difference between locking down a dominance tile and flipping over all the dominance tiles, because, you know, if you lock one down, you end up flipping the other ones anyway. As soon as they see that happen, it clicks for them. It, it, it clicks at least on a mechanical yes, uh, yeah. standpoint, but the the butterfly effect of oh wow, oh if I flip this oh if I flip mm. this, then that means all of those flip oh I didn't anticipate that, and then yeah. another player comes in behind and chooses to flip a different color of sea mm-hmm. enemy, and all of a sudden the board state has completely changed. Oh, I was not prepared for that. So yeah. I agree that. Uh, the end game scoring also is very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding how to manipulate your opponents and doing all that definitely takes a number of games. Yeah. Uh, but the actual how do you do things and the why am I doing things will happen in the first game. But some of the little tricks of cannibalizing your own uh, coral to be able to give you some more tiles mm-hmm. in front of your player board or in front of your player screen, which the more tiles you have up there, the more powerful and the kind of uh, position of strength from which you're working, being able to manipulate to that to your advantage is definitely going to take a number of plays. But mechanically, yeah, sometime in the first shrimp or two of eating, you should be good to go. So mm-hmm. ultimately, where do you think this game falls? I, I would call it medium plus, not quite medium heavy, uh, but me, I would definitely say medium plus. And maybe that's just because I have not had enough experience with the game because, you know, the more I find that I play these medium weight games, quote unquote, the more I realize the depth that they have and they become heavier. But right now I would call it a medium plus. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty fair uh, with at least in my experience of the game. It's, it's an older title, so usually these games tend to be uh they tend to be perceived as lighter as we as time goes on Mm -hmm. uh than they were back then and i feel like this is definitely like if your standard midweight that we use uh, somewhat jokingly as one rococo is Mm -hmm. solid midweight uh line there this is definitely up from that yeah i would put it to one and a half or two rococo so yeah i i I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek but yeah mid midweight plus this is definitely not uh on the same level as you know in indonesia or oh no yeah you know weight wise there but it also it's it's hard to wrap your head around to play well. Mm-hmm. So that's going to elevate it into a heavier frame than your standard midweight Euro. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So moving on to uh, just components and, and you know, the graphic design and artwork component wise, what say you, sir? Well, I got to be honest, uh- Components and artwork and graphic design, I never really have too much of a problem with any game. I mean, obviously, I'm trying to collect all the splatter games, so I can't hate bad art that much. But the only problem I have is that my version doesn't have the googly-eyed shrimp. Now, to be clear, there isn't a version out there that has googly-eyed shrimp. Oh, there isn't. Okay. There isn't. So rest assured okay. that you're not missing out. So my edition that we streamed and, and that I have is the Z-Man edition, which is the second edition. 
here mm-hmm. in the States. And uh, you too can have the googly eyed shrimp with a trip to your local craft store to get some googly eyes and a little dab of super glue. Well, I just might have to do that. That'll that'll just bring the game to a whole other level. I might be medium heavy at that point. You're right. No, and obviously <laughs> we're joking about this, but every every copy that I've ever seen of Reef Encounter, so everybody is glued googly eyes onto their shrimp because yeah. Maybe that's why I thought of the first time I played it of a different guy's copy, he had googly eyes. So I just thought there was just one edition, but no, interesting. everybody has done that. Okay, so. cool. Uh, Good to know. <laughs> that's pretty funny, though. Uh, overall, I would say it's solid standard production for what you mm-hmm. would expect. There are thick tiles. The boards are good. It's simple wooden pieces. It does have shrimples. Obviously, yes. we're talking about here. fantastic shrimples, right? It, I mean, it's it's solid for what you would expect and what you would want, in my opinion. the 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 parrot fish, which are basically just three D little receptacles for to you to put your tiles in. Once those are assembled, there's no reason to ever tear them apart. And maybe mm-hmm. they get a little dog eared and they get a little bent here and there, mm-hmm. whatever. But overall. Yeah, I think the production quality is perfectly standard for what you would expect. Yeah. All right. Uh, However, (laughs) the color of the algae cylinders, which are what you use for flipping uh, the control or dominance tiles slash the coral strength tiles. I use those terms interchangeably, but those don't at all match the color of the actual tiles themselves, which is really frustrating if you don't know any better, you get used to associating pink and purple as the same thing. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. come on, that's that's frustrating. But Just adds more weight to the game, I guess. Uh, yeah, the wrong kind though. But yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, other than that, I would say just standard component quality that you would expect. Mm-hmm. As far as the box size, it's 12 and a half by essentially nine inches by just under three inches or 32 by 23 by seven centimeters. Uh, yeah, I, I like the box size. I think it's larger than it needs to be. But with the size it is, it lets you keep the, the parrot fish assembled, which if you don't want to tear them down every game, then it's fine for that. But, it, it you know, it, it's fine for exactly what's inside the box. Yep. Agreed. And as far as the graphic design here. There's honestly, there's not a lot here as it's it's really about the coral tile colors, uh, which we'll get into here in a little bit. But mm-hmm. coral strength tiles themselves or the dominant tiles, again, same thing. They have little sea anemones to signify what color that they have in common with the other coral strength tiles so that when you place one of your algae tokens, so all of the pink ones flip or all the blue ones flip or whatever. That's okay. However, the li- the the color of the sea enemy, sea enemy, easy for me to say, <laughs> that's on the flip side of that tile is kind of peeking out from behind, and so that can be a little hard to see because it's so small on that tile, and the tiles are kind of small as is. So that can be uh, maybe something could have been done a little bit better graphic design wise on that. But honestly, that's my biggest gripe if you want to call it that with the graphic design yeah sometimes the the color of the 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 coral doesn't exactly match the color of the cubes that you use just off the top of my head the black gray coral and the black gray cube that it represents doesn't always match which can hurt but it never really bothers me it bothers other people at the table but 
Right. That yeah. And, and the uh the the like the the yellow and the orange can be yeah. close together and the the black and the white which you wouldn't think would be close together right but However, they are they kind of are now the graphic design on the tiles themselves are different enough to be able to tell them apart in yeah. those regards but still could have done probably a better job on matching colors but again mm-hmm. this was 15 years ago not giving it a pass just saying that <laughs> things have come a long way and that attention to detail seems to have come more to the forefront now than mm-hmm. it was back then yeah I think uh, you know color blindness is a lot more. Um, there's a lot more aware. Work. Yeah, yes. it's more aware of now to game designers where they make sure that games are colorblind friendly or have symbols on everything to represent, which is fantastic. And unfortunately, a lot of those older games don't have that accessibility to them. Right, and from everything now, I am not colorblind, so I cannot speak to this. Although in yeah. getting ready for this review, I did read a number of comments that said that it is not at all colorblind friendly uh, mm-hmm. so that's something to be aware of unfortunately so if this were to ever get another edition i would hope that that would get addressed going yeah forward. yeah then uh then there's the player aids now you and i have a difference of opinion on the player aids we do i i like them i think that they're for me being the 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 more visual pictorial learner than i am i think they work great I can understand them. My favorite is whichever action it is, like action number nine, where it's just pass and the box is empty. That's my favorite. Right, I get a kick out of that. Yeah. Yes, I can and, appreciate that. And we'll, we'll talk about the rule book a little bit later, but the rule book says you could take any of those middle actions in any order. So I go, okay, I'll move my shrimp, then I'll pass, then I'll do this, then I'll pass again. It's just, it's, <laughs> I, I like it. See, now here's the thing. I appreciate the fact that they went for language independence on the player aid mm-hmm. and I get what they were going for, but I think they made it maybe a little, they went too far with it. Now, there is another player aid on BGG by a BGG user named Thunked, T-H-U-N-K-D. And the player aid is called Reef Encounter Summary slash Player Aid. Original title, I realize. Oh, it's very I got to be honest, I use it. I recommend it. It's basically taken the gist of what the basic player aid that comes with the game, um, but kind of enhanced it a little bit, but also uh, also gave words uh, for those that would like such a thing. And it helps tremendously, I find, with new players, but also if the game hasn't hit the table in a while and you're coming back to it, to me, that helps kind of break it down a little bit better. So yeah, that that that's something to be aware of. And okay, Let's face it, there are plenty of games out there that have better player aids by users on BGG, etc. Mm-hmm. And this one is no different, in my opinion. That's true. That's true. All right. So moving on to the artwork, uh, what you think of, uh, well, mostly talking about the second edition. I yes. Yes. Uh, it's pretty, I don't want to say generic, but it's it's kind of exactly what you would expect from a game like this. I've seen pictures of the first edition, which is kind of more the cartoony, hand drawn artwork, and it's more pastel. I think that looks really cool. Uh, but the the second edition, it's I would say just it's not offensive artwork. As far as the the game boards go, it's it's good. There's not too much going on. The the tiles are awesome. The tiles have different 
kinds of coral for the different colors, which I think is really cool, and it lights up the whole board. But there's spots on the game boards, which are supposed to be empty. Right, and holes like yeah, water, unbuildable, unavailable spaces. And, and sometimes it can be really hard to discern that. And then there's also like corners that are cut off of the board to make sure that you can't play off that edge. And I don't know why they just didn't do something like that. Or and there's always a, there's a starfish in the center of every board, which means you get an extra little bonus tile to place there if you play adjacently. And sometimes that could be easy to miss. So I think it, it's very understated. And sometimes that's to the, the detriment of the game, especially from the game board side. I agree. And then I, on the positive side of things, Things. You have the parrotfish, which is again, you're just kind of 3D. Think uh, like the uh, oh the, shoot, the the castle from El Grande, that's the Castillo, exactly what yeah. I, the Castillo in El Grande, but smaller. Uh, yeah, that's essentially what this is. And the parrotfish, like the artwork on those, it's all player color, so that's always nice. The 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 player screens that are kept up and are an integral part of the game have mm-hmm. pretty parrotfish and and some artwork on it, and I think. There's a lot of people that really don't like the theme in this game, I found out, or that really? feel that it's completely pasted on. I think that the artwork uh, of, like you said, the tiles, the coral or mm-hmm. polyp tiles uh, evoke the theme. And I feel like the player aid and, or I'm sorry, the uh, player screen and honestly, the player aids as well, uh, as well as the uh, the parrotfish themselves, I think do a good job of tying it all together and making the theme kind of hold up to me so yeah mm-hmm. i think the artwork does a real good job the the first edition that is not my style of game oh. uh, of artwork and not my favorite but that's okay i'm not talking about that edition we're talking <laughs> about the second edition it's true it's true so uh yeah so i think it's i think it does a good job for what it tries to do yeah. there's not a ton of artwork in the game honestly mm-hmm. because of the fact that it is an abstract at its core yeah so the, the people that think it, the theme is just pasted on obviously have not read the front page of the rule book. Right. Oh, I, we're going to get into that. I, I'm sure I we are. I cannot wait. I am so <laughs> excited for that. All right. So moving on to the, the rule book, uh, clarity and quality. Go ahead. I'll let you start. So I have to be honest. I never had to read this rule book. I was taught this game. And then, you know, me being a teacher, it kind of clicks for me on how to teach games a little bit faster. So I never had to teach or read the rule book to learn how to play the game, which is nice because I read some comments on BGG today before we started this. And I don't think people like it very much. <laughs> Boy, you are kind. I, yeah, uh, I, I try to be. Richard Breeze, uh, very nice gentleman. Uh, and he's designed some, in my opinion, Hall of Fame worthy games. Mm-hmm. Rule book writing, not his forte, however. <laughs> all right. Uh, the layout of the rule book is, is pretty poor. And in all honesty, I understand why people would say it's tough to learn the game from the rule book. Uh, mm-hmm. To quote one person. Quote, we sold the game last week. Despite having owned the game for about 18 months, we never managed to decipher the rules to be able to actually play it. It might be a great game. Just couldn't bear to read through the rules one more time. Oh, my goodness. Like, that is the most depressing, sad indictment that you could have for a game right there. If somebody, it, it just... If your rule book is impenetrable, and I realize I'm beating a dead horse because I've said this more times than I haven't on this podcast, then 
you know what? It's time to offload the rule book writing to somebody else. And this this is not a good rule book. Is it learnable? Yes. But I'm all, I also do this for a living. If and Zach, you didn't have to learn it from the, I would hate to have to learn it from this rule book. So, yeah. yeah, there's not a ton of rules questions for, especially given how old this is on BGG, but it just, that quote mm-hmm. kind of tells you that, you know what people tried to, and they just, no, no, I, I give up. It's not worth it. There's too many games that I don't have to fight through. So no, I'm not going to bother. And that is a real shame with this mm-hmm. game. And for the people that care about this kind of thing, it's written in Comic Sans. The entire, the entire, I'm looking at mine right now, the whole thing, Comic Sans. See, and I I just heard a audible groan universally by everyone that just heard that. I I mean, it's it's not papyrus, but it's pretty bad. Oh. (laughs) That SNL sketch is the best. Oh, that's so, I didn't realize that. Yep. Oh, you know, if Greg was was guest hosting today, dude, we would have like a 20-minute tirade on this. This would be amazing. I'm sure. I digress. All right. So (laughs) enough about the rule book. Um, Good thing there's a teaching video. Out there. Oh, absolutely. In fact, Yours is fantastic. There's there's actually two excellent ones. There's one by the uh the highly humorous and wonderful Scott Nicholson. Uh, mm-hmm. that actually I kind of tried to follow his format, honestly, uh, a little bit when I did mine. So um big shout out to Scott and he was instrumental in absolutely that he's done for this hobby. So big thank you to Scott for that. So and if you're a if you're a fan of the Wes Anderson movie, uh, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, you will love the front page of this rule book. It's like a National Geographic article talking about the theme and why the fish are doing these things. And it's uh, the, the guy that taught me this game refused to stop reading it while we were learning the game. And I'm like, I just want to learn this game. But he he kept going every paragraph of this of this. I'm going to say marine biology lesson on the front page. If you if you want to check it out, would it's, you know uh, the background as to how this game came about? That, wasn't he like going to an aquarium and nope, he nope. just A- no? Actually, okay, you will hear about it later on. So perfect. I'll, I'll perfect. save the surprise for later. All right, I, I am excited now. All right, so uh, getting to the meat of things. Um, why do you enjoy this game, Zach? I enjoy this game because. When you sit down and you learn the game and you are you draw your initial tiles, you think about, okay, great, I'm going to put this coral over here, I'll lock it down with this shrimp, I might flip this tile over to make it worth more, uh, I might do this, and I'm going to get all these points, and then turn by turn, all the rest of the players destroy those dreams. That's and the mas- awesome. Yes. The masochist in me that also loves Agricola for the same reason, look at your hand of cards, oh, wow, this is going to be a great game of Agricola, and then you end the game wanting to stab everybody else at the table. It's that's my favorite part of this game. Well, you're selling it well. If you like stabbing other people at the table, uh, check out Reef Encounter. The end. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> I don't know why that wasn't the tagline of the original. I mean, perfect. Point. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll be sure to mention it to Richard when I see Medesin. All right. Please, please. Uh, so for me, the best part of Reef Encounter and the part that seems to be the aspect of the game that either hooks or repels players in general is kind of the dual purpose of those dominance or coral strength tiles. The dominance tile determine the relationship between each color a polyp or of coral tile. And 
what can take over or dominate another color. So you have, say, yellow dominates orange and white dominates yellow, etc. And the polyp tiles, those are the actual tiles that you place out onto the board to eventually feed your parrot fish to score you points, which is the goal of the game. Now, one of the goals of the game, even though scoring points ultimately is the only goal that matters, one of the goals, though, to be able to do that well is to flip some of those dominance tiles so that they show the reverse relationship, meaning, okay, a yellow polyp that dominates an orange tile can be flipped over to where now the orange dominates the yellow, et cetera, et cetera. And during the game, these tiles determine which color coral can attack which color coral. And at the end of the game, the victory point value of each of the color of polyp tile is dictated by how dominant it is over the other tiles or over the other colors. So, for example, yellow polyp tiles might be worth more victory points than black or orange ones because yellow dominates four of the other colors while black only dominates two and maybe orange only dominates one. So it's only going to be worth one or two or two or, uh, you know, three points, whereas yellow might be worth five points per tile. Therefore, having only a couple of yellow polyp tiles eaten can be extremely lucrative or, or those shares that your parrotfish has eaten can be worth a huge amount of points and having two yellow shares or two yellow polyps worth five points each being 10 points are going to be worth a ton more of say those orange tiles that are only worth two points a piece whereas you would need to eat five of those as opposed to the two yellow mm -hmm. and so this pseudo kind of stock market it really opens up for being able to you know not only strategize both tactically as well as strategically but that's where that player interaction really comes in is that constant struggle of dominance between what coral is stronger than the other which means what coral can eat other coral which also allows you to put more tiles in front of your player screen which allows you to do more things and have more options yeah and trying to hurt a player that has you know a couple of those really high value tiles eaten uh doesn't just happen in one turn because if you need to flip those over not all of the yellow relationship tiles flip over with the same color of sea and enemy so it could take a couple of actions or a couple players working together to do that and the the tiles they have to spend to do that could be really expensive because those are the tiles in front of your shield which are always worth a lot to you because those are the extra ones you could play or the ones you could spend to flip over those dominance tiles but uh so you can kind of turn this well i think uh, somebody on the slack channel said that every game could be a negotiation game you need to turn it into more of negotiation of turning against that player and devaluing their stock that they worked so hard to to consume right but it doesn't necessarily have to it could just be yeah. applied cooperation to where it's not it, it is as uh, blatant as hey Zach you see what you know Chris has been doing over here you're gonna help me out a little it doesn't have to be that blatant it could just be well if you're paying attention mm -hmm. you saw that he just ate all you know three or four of these really high value tiles um, collectively if you want a chance to win the game 
uh, you better help with this. Yeah, that can all be done unsaid potentially mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, uh, conspire to or build up your own coral of that color. And if you can't beat them, join them type thing. So there mm-hmm. are different ways to go about doing this and manipulating your shrimp around the board can do exactly that because your shrimp, you have four of them and you can score a maximum of four times in this game. And what you score by eating one of your shrimp, but you also eat all of the tiles that that shrimp is protecting. Now a shrimp can only protect five tiles, the tile it's on and then one in every orthogonal direction. However, there can only be one shrimp per coral reef or per color grouping of that color. So he might only be, or she, it, your shrimp can only be protecting five tiles directly, but it's actually protecting an entire coral, hopefully. And that's where that, those dominance tiles come in because if this white tile or this white coral is more dominant than say yellow coral and it's directly adjacent to Mm -hmm. that yellow coral, it can then start eating up that yellow coral and growing bigger. Whereas if the flip side were true, the yellow can start infringing on the white coral, except for what your shrimp is directly positioned to protect. And so it's a constant tug of war between you know the ebb and flow of dominance and control uh, and strength but also it's a game of timing of when do I eat my shrimp because when you eat that shrimp awesome you're scoring points how many points will be dictated by the end result of those dominance tiles Mm -hmm. but you're also losing control because now you can only control three or two or only one coral because as you as you're as your parrot fish eats, you lose shrimp and shrimp yeah. protect your coral. And you also want to build up those reefs to be as large as you can because you lose what, the first four tiles every time you eat. Yeah. Something like so that. that. As, as Scott Nicholson uh, likes to say, uh, parrot fish are messy eaters. And so they lose, you know, they, they, it, they, they just start to devour the coral, but you know, some of it just kind of flutters away and they waste it. And yeah. so the first few tiles that you eat, you actually don't even get to eat. You just put them back in the bag and they're lost. Mm-hmm. So you better have big enough tiles to make it valuable enough to waste eating a shrimp to make it, you know, valuable enough to to lose that control. Yeah. So you can have a reef that's like six tiles large where, man, if I can take another really good turn, I could build this up to be eight or nine and get even more. But what are the likelihood that somebody else cuts in through my reef with a more dominant coral and just ruins my whole plan there? So you have to think about that's where really watching the other players and what tiles they draft and what cubes they take and what they're what you think they're planning to do comes into come into play there. Yeah, and very much playing the other players. And it's also it's risk management as well as greed management because mm-hmm. when, you know you, if if you have a a tile, a polyp tile or a coral tile, six one half dozen the other, that's worth a lot of points you want and you have the ability to be able to place it out there on the board you want to be able to do so but with the catch being the very first thing that you can do on your turn is have your parrot fish eat one of your shrimp or eat Mm -hmm. one of your coral well if you take any other actions on your turn 
Well, it's no longer your first action. So what does that mean? You can't lay tiles out there as well as eat that, that, that coral reef. So now you have to not only have to sweat being able to place them out there, but you have to worry about it surviving. Yeah. It gets back to your turn so that now you can eat those. So yeah, it's, it's risk management coupled with uh, greed management is the way I think of it. Absolutely. And now getting back to that, Oh, a coral strength tile or, or the dominance tiles, those are connected to a couple of other things that when you choose to flip one of those tiles, it flips others. So it may have unintended consequences. And because you flip this one that might have white being dominant over yellow, it the same color anemone that you're using to flip that or, or the algae isn't universal for all of that color's tiles. And so there might be other tiles that you were like, oh, no. I didn't realize it was going to flip that one and that one. So now that four-point coral tiles that I've eaten are now worth two points to be able to boost this one from two to three. Mm -hmm. oh, that, 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 wasn't, that wasn't smart. Yeah, And it's not just you doing it, but everybody at the table has the ability to do it based on if they have the tiles in front of their board. Mm -hmm. So you, you could have moments where you flip over a tile and go, ha, screw you. I just made those tiles you just ate worth less. And then you look at yourself and go, oh, no, I just ate those same tiles. Right. And oh, yeah. I didn't plan on that. And yeah. Yeah. So plan better. Right. Exactly. And so. To kind of drive home the point of having the important uh, or the importance of having those tiles in front of your player screen, I don't think we can overstate that because that is it is perceived strength, but as well as the ability to do things because you get them from placing those polyps on the board that are dominant over another color. So mm -hmm. in that earlier example of where I had a big white reef, well, if yellow is more dominant than the white then yellow can start eating that some of my white tiles. And it's so any tiles that they acquire that other player, they get to put them in front of their player screen. And those can be used for essentially three different, very important actions, which mm -hmm. are you, they can exchange it for a larva cube, which you need larva cubes to be able to play tiles from behind your screen to build up your, your coral to begin with. So you have to have the right color larva screen or larva cube to go with the polyp tiles for what you're trying to build. So that's going to be important. Mm -hmm. But when you do so, you're discarding those tiles in front. Another option is they're unlimited in placement. So if you already have a larva cube of that color and you have a number of cube or tiles behind your screen, you're limited to only four from behind your screen to be able to go out onto the board to build up your, your uh, coral per per action. However, mm -hmm. if you have a bunch of them in front of your screen, those are unlimited. So you can take up to four from behind your screen and maybe four or five from in front and make one massive reef all in one turn. Again, using an efficiency of actions, if you have planned well enough, and this is where I'm talking about that long-term planning earlier, mm -hmm. if you have planned that well enough, you then can be able to have a massive reef out there which sure people are going to see that but they not only are you going to be able to surprise them with that but 
they have to be able to react immediately before the beginning of your next turn, which if it's big enough, you're probably going to eat it. Mm -hmm. They have one, one turn to be able to adjust to what it is that you just did. And maybe some of them do, and they eat some of them. But even so, hopefully you've built it big enough to where now it scores you a whole host of points. Mm -hmm. Hopefully. Hopefully. That's, that's only the second option. The third option, and this is arguably the most important, which is exchanging one of those tiles for an algae cylinder. And those algae cylinders are how you flip the coral strength tiles, but also how you lock them. And locking them is a permanent thing for the game, meaning, okay, if I lock this tile, that means that black is going to be dominant over, say, yellow permanently. It mm -hmm. also means that black is going to be worth one more point for each child that you've consumed or anybody has consumed by the end of the game. So locking them as the game progresses, you know, dictates the actual end game position of and the strength or the value of these shares. Mm -hmm. Go back to the analogy of an 18xx or, or of a stock investment game. So having those tiles in front of your board by being able to eat weaker tile or weaker coral out there is uber important and man does it feel good when you can chain together a whole bunch of those actions in one turn. absolutely yeah they're definitely the the currency of the game the tiles in front of your shield and money is tight it is but it also gives you the ability to be flexible to yeah. be able to change and this is what goes back to what i said earlier about forcing other people to react to you instead of you reacting to them. If mm -hmm. you have more of those tiles in front, you can force people into actions that either they weren't hope weren't wanting to do or weren't planning to do, but you might force them to do, which if you can plan for that, then you can kind of know what it is that they were going to do before they do because they weren't planning on reacting to you. So it becomes that whole meta and how many layers deep do you want mm -hmm. to go as far as controlling and manipulating the other players? Yeah. So I talked about timing, but it's also important to know that at most, you're only going to be able to score four times throughout the game based on if you're able to eat all four shrimp. Not everybody's going to be able to do that. So then it becomes a, a decision of how greedy do you get? Do you get you know, multiple small feedings of just a couple of tiles, or do you try and, you know, work up to that example earlier where you have, you know, one or two massive feedings of just one or two colors and hope that's going to be good enough. And so it becomes a decision of timing as well as, well, greed, really. <laughs> Which is always a fun thing to have in the game. Isn't it? Absolutely. The game rarely plays uh, the same over repeated plays, even though the game itself doesn't have a whole lot by way of variable setup. It really is a big sandbox from which to operate because it doesn't have, oh, completely variable setup. So, okay, what tiles you get mm -hmm. and what larva cubes you choose, that's basically the variance of the startup as well as, you know, what's on offer at the beginning of the game. Mm -hmm. Other than that, Almost every one of my games has played out differently just based on, well, that initial, you know, tile distribution, but also what the players choose to do. 
Yeah, it's I, I like that sandbox use for this because it's not sandbox in the way that I think a lot of modern games call themselves sandbox games, but the way that you can play the other players instead of the game and the manipulation and the negotiation, I think opens up a lot of space within the very few rules that the game has to create a very interesting player-to-player game space. Yeah, and I mean, when you stop and think about this, and I mentioned earlier that it's an abstract, but if you look at it as a, as a stock investment game, I, I, I would never... Just on the surface, if you knew nothing about a game called Reef Encounter and you mm-hmm. saw the game itself, just you saw pictures of it, you wouldn't look. You know what? You know what this game is, really. <laughs> it's a stock investment game. Likes, likes. But when you actually take a step back and you look at it, you're manipulating the share value of these stocks by the dominance mm-hmm. of one coral over another. And I feel like just by that one concept, we have both turned on a bunch of people to this game and at the same time turned off mm-hmm. people to this game. But that if if you want, you can absolutely look at it that way because, well, it really is kind of that. Yeah. You have to think about what the best time is to capitalize on whatever your positions are. Well, I can eat this reef now and only get two tiles or build it up later and try to score more off of just this one action and trying to maximize your your gain off of your investment on that and trying to quarter the market on a color and all that other stuff that would go into an investment market manipulation game. And on top of that, when to lock certain dominance tiles matters. If you lock too early, you give everybody the opportunity to react to that. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you lock it late, you're risking it not being worth as much. Potentially it could go the other way, right? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe the interest rate comes down. I'm I'm taking this a little far, I realize. (laughs) But you get the idea. Like it might be worth more if you do actually wait. But you're also risking the potential on the other side of it. So again, it goes back to that timing in this game that is really, really important. Yeah, timing is crucial. All right, so on the flip side of things, things that uh, we're not as keen on, what do you have, sir? Uh, there's not too much in this game that I don't like. Now, kind of <laughs> ca- kind of factoring into this, which I we haven't mentioned yet, I don't know if you didn't want to mention it, but there is an expansion for this game. I've never played it. I never have either, and from everybody that I've talked to that has experience with the game and from everything that I've read online, no need. Great. So the the expansion that you probably don't have is what's not to like about this. There you go. Right. Yeah. I, I, from everything I've heard, it's completely unnecessary and it changes the game into something it wasn't supposed to be. Well, there you go. I haven't played it, but that's what I, and so honestly, I don't think the game needs it. So absolutely. So some things that players at my table have said they don't like about it, not necessarily me, but the other people, you know, it's very take that in a game that they going into it didn't expect it to be that way. So that was probably my bad as the teacher. I need to explain the game, how it's meant to be played and what's actually going to go on, even though it has kind of a thinly veiled, you know, oh, we're just fish in the bottom of the sea trying to eat coral. It's actually a lot more aggressive than that. And I think that the not expecting that to happen in the game is what some people didn't like at my table nature don't play yeah exactly (laughs) and also on that note it's it can be tactical 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, there's not there's only so much planning that you can do because as we talked about earlier, the board state can change, especially in the higher player counts. Yeah, the board state can change pretty drastically between turns. So something that you were planning on doing may not be as viable or as lucrative as you originally planned. So you need to be aware of that as well coming in, and then other things kind of that either that I thought of that some folks might be turned off on or that maybe not won't sit well with others, but it it's very much an area control attack game. So be careful who you bring to the table, right? Mm-hmm. Downtime, especially at the higher player counts can be an issue for some, which kind of goes in line with AP because yeah. it's an abstract and abstracts. I mean, there's a reason chess clocks, exist right it's true so there's that uh the game can end abruptly if you're not watching and you're not prepared for it so it can be like whoa whoa, what what do you mean it's over i need like Mm -hmm. three more actions i know sorry uh and at times the game can feel like it's playing you versus you playing the game uh, due to other players manipulating you into a corner and all of your decisions feel forced. Well, I would argue that if the other players are playing well, that's their goal. Exactly. They want to manipulate you into you don't have as many decisions as you would like. Well, for the most part, I would argue play better in mm-hmm. that case. And that's a player issue, not a game issue. Yeah. The game. We always jokingly, if something like that comes up where a player feels like they were screwed over or, you know, if they feel like they got the short end of a stick in the game, we always jokingly say, all right, next game, then next game, you'll 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 fix that. Right. Now, you know, it's there you go. So um, now I have encountered situations where players just feel hemmed in from the get go. And that mm. doesn't feel good, but I, I would I could make that case, I think, for a number of different games that have a lot of player interaction like this one does. Mm-hmm. So just be aware of that going in. And you know what? Ride the waves and play it again. Absolutely. So going back to the game ending abruptly, I just want to ask you real quick, how have you seen the game and just by eating the shrimp or any of the other end game conditions? I'll be honest, every single time I've seen it due to the shrimp the the four shrimp being eaten by a player. Yeah. That that's there are a couple of other ways that the game can end, but I haven't seen it. I haven't either. I saw some comments on BGG talking about running out of the larva cubes could be kind of broken because people can keep absorbing those, and we'll probably talk about that later. But I haven't seen it end any other way either. No, and to be honest with you, there was a rule change. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. That's uh, there, right. There was a rule change that Richard Breeze uh, heard this feedback, and that people would be able to acquire larva cubes without using right away. And mm-hmm. so now. The rule is anytime you exchange one of those tiles for a larva cube, you have to use it immediately. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it still can't end that way. It's just, well, again, in about a dozen plays, I've never seen it. And so it's definitely going to become the exception to the rule uh, Mm -hmm. nowadays, um, as opposed to before that rule change was implemented. uh, Because people were kind of grinding the game to a halt because of it. Yeah. Using it to end uh, artificially when that wasn't the intent. So, but yeah, it's pretty much when the when the first player feeds his, or eats their fourth shrimp. That's okay. been a hundred percent of the of the case. So moving on to scalability, 
So what do you think? We've, we, both of us have predominantly played this at three and four players, but I've heard in, you know, we've only have a couple of games under our belt at two player, but it plays marvelously well at two players. Yeah. I really like it at two players. It kind of feels like it's not a great comparison, but uh, PAX Premier Second Edition playing that two players feels very much. Uh, Cole Worley said it feels like speed chess. This is kind of the same thing. Where if I let you get ahead too far in one color, and there's not too much that I could do about it because we're just playing two players. I'm like, all right, you planned way better than I did. Let's set it up. Let's try it again. That's three exactly, players. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Three players. It's kind of you know you have more turns to go around. Four is probably my least favorite just because of how much the board can change in between turns but it does scale well because it adds more game boards and more players are in and you can only have two shrimp per game board so it helps there but if everybody's focusing on one board and that's where all the contention is then it can be a little little chaotic on that one board yeah and and i i don't want to parrot what he Ah, he just ah. said but yeah it's basically there's more variability uh, in what will happen and there's more call it chaos i guess uh as the player count goes up but the game scales well even though all it is is the player boards it's one mm-hmm. player board per player uh you're not playing just on your own player board but just the actual uh game space is confined more uh based on player count so that's the really the only scalability of the game itself but yeah i enjoy it at all three player counts but it does go longer with more mm-hmm. players because potentially there's more or there's going to be more time between your actions whereas in a two-player game actions can be quite snappy and the game can go well under an hour it can go yeah. a 40 minute game potentially mm-hmm. yeah and it plays differently like we talked about at those different player counts it kind of becomes a different version of the same game where you see different strategies and different things take place and that's not a game that i would have initially thought to compare this to but the more i think about it now that you mentioned it the pax premiere second because it plays so differently at every Mm -hmm. account i i i totally get that comparison now and yeah um that works so good call on that well thank you all right so i'm really excited about this next part i'm I'm not even gonna lie comments (laughs) from bgg so sit back enjoy I definitely am. Uh, It's going to be a bit longer than they normally are because there were some really good ones that I wasn't willing to cut out. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to indulge. So I'm indulging. Hopefully you guys indulge me. So here we go. And remember, this game's from 2004. (laughs) So these cover the gamut of modern comments as opposed to earlier comments of the game. I'm not going to tell you which. You'll probably be able to figure this out. This game has a lot of thinking going into a single point scoring action. Points are only scored four times in the game per player and not necessarily at the same time. With multiple players, the game can be quite brutal. Starts off pretty slow and the game is extremely abstract. Artwork's really good. Theme's okay. The actions seem clunky and people are subject to analysis paralysis throughout the game. You have to think as far ahead as four or five actions in order to pull something off. That can cause a lot of AP. Consume polyps are the key to the game to such a degree that it really is what the game's about. Not the parrotfish consumption, but coral fighting other coral. I was like, yeah, no, no. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Apparently, Richard Breeze got the idea for this game 
while watching Blue Planet special on coral reefs. It is parrotfish and shrimp and algae and coral varieties with shifting dominance relationships to one another that vie for territorial dominance by eating each other. This game has one of the strangest dynamics of ebb and flow that actually feels like some bizarre underwater ecosystem. It is brain bending and inspirational, and we always have a great time discovering new ways to devour your own and other coral for personal benefit. Nothing is permanent in Reef Encounter until you fix the dominance relationship of two coral varieties with an algae disc. Nothing like it in one of my favorite games of all time. So there you go. There's the yeah. history of the inspiration. Wow, for, that's awesome. For a Reef Encounter. These positive comments are making me really excited for what I'm sure the negative ones are going to be. <laughs> uh, this one was a strong negative. For okay. Worth, but it's very okay. succinct. Okay. Not for the board gaming week of heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here we go. All right. Unbelievable learning curve. Way too complex with unfamiliar and repetitive terminology. Coral boards, coral tiles, polyps, consume polyps, larva coral, algae cylinders. Add in player colors with a U, matching or not, cube colors, matching or not, algae colors. Ugh. Too many mechanics. Doesn't really match the underwater theme. Feels very abstract when I played only on spielbyweb.com, which you can play online, by the way. Oh, wow. And very fiddly. Seemed weird to just have five to seven turns and very big turns while everyone else just sits and waits. I find it very uninteresting overall. Sure, there are ways to control the scoring, and you can try to limit the other players by eating their unprotected corals. But with the shrimp protecting up to five corals tiles and with five tiles being good enough to score points seems to prevent offensive plays i.e creativity by making defense far too easy i'll play if somebody else wants to but no way would i ever seen the point of owning this nor trying to teach others how to play payoff just isn't worth it it was high on my wish list now removed hmm okay okay he uh I'm guessing he did not enjoy his one play of this. I, I, I gather not. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest, my favorite one here. Okay. Whoever said this game had anything in common with Tigris and Euphrates is simply wrong. Other than placing square tiles, they're nothing alike in gameplay and in character. The timing of Reef Encounter is just uninteresting. And like many <laughs> indie games, it could have used more cleaning up and streamlining to make it play better. The clunkiness of trading consume polyps for polyp cubes or algae cylinders and polyp cubes for polyp tiles is extremely clunky. The sizable player turns wreck whatever momentum the game has. Finally, the theme doesn't work at all. Who are the players? How do they control a fish? Some shrimp in the growth of corals? Are they sea gods? Neptune? Poseidon? Habakkuk? I find no joy in this game. Remove from wish list. Update. <laughs> Confirming the problems with Reef Encounter. When players aren't just taking cubes and tiles, they're constructing large turns in their heads. The board is totally static the entire game with the shrimp shutting down any board activity and people jumping through hoops to generate consumed polyps, which is just tremendously boring. All of that just to create a resource? Why? 
I'm also hugely perplexed by the ascendancy tiles. This mechanism adds a significant fiddliness to the proceedings without adding any real value to the gameplay. So you have to have the thing on the right side to attack, and you can also have it on a certain side to score more. Because those color corals are more dominant, and this can change after the fact, post-digestion by the fish, I guess? Okay. And perhaps worst of all, the timing and rhythm of the game is abysmal. It's a struggle for the players to keep their minds on the game. Reef Encounter is one of the biggest game disappointments in terms of my anticipation to actual experience com comparison. I have a feeling that Reef Encounter could have been improved with a lot more development to file down the many rough edges in the design. Too bad. <laughs> Oh, the hold on. There's, there's oh, more. okay, okay. I'm waiting. Update number two. Oh no. Recommended by my geek buddies. Eleven ratings, seven point nine average rating. Well, now that Z-Man is going to reprint Reef Encounter and give him my satisfaction with their handling of Santiago, I can safely put this on my Dubai list. However, it better not cost a hundred bucks. What? There's there's so much to dive into in, in this one review. I first of all, the thing that stuck with me, he called it an indie game. Yep. But he comments on board game geek. So what what exactly does he define as an indie game? For 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 me, I was just there's so much to there is the but the that one and the one before it have in common. They were talking about how shrimp protecting five tiles is too powerful. Where in every game I've played, I think my shrimp can only protect five tiles. Right, and it's, as I, I don't to that many. Right, yeah. They but just play too cautiously. Those, I guess those are those are definitely from earlier, earlier that's, times. Okay, uh, right, that's true. That's true. All right, got two more to go through. Here we go. Okay, okay. Warning. This game has a steep learning curve. Players with weak constitutions beware. Your corals <laughs> will be consumed. And in all scenarios, it will be your own damn fault. <laughs> reef Encounter tells the story of life and death on a coral reef. Players share the same board space and they can all control the growth and expansion of coral, but you do not necessarily play a single type. In fact, you must strive to score in as many types of coral as possible with the caveat that certain types may score higher than others. Those corals that score higher are the types that are more, more powerful and the types that are more powerful are the same types that you can place to consume the weaker coral, which then contribute to your final score but the points you obtain from scoring those coral are dependent on wait wasn't i just here <laughs> therein lies the genius of richard breeze's design there's a certain circle of life quality here where players must wrestle with discovering where exactly they can fit amongst this processes somehow reef encounter manages to convey life on a coral reef as if it were a battlefield Coral strength changes throughout the game, and through clever manipulation of your strength tiles, your parrotfish may be able to eat vast areas of coral for a hefty sum of points. However, your, and your in quotes, areas are never fully safe from harm as swaths of coral unprotected by your shrimp, i.e. the guardian of the seas, are prone to be consumed by stronger coral or worse, eaten by other players' parrotfish. For their own gain. Yeah, that, that yeah, sums it up pretty well, I'd say. That's pretty well written, yeah. Yeah. 
All right, here we go. Last one. Reef Encounter comes off as an abstract game, but from the way Mr. Breeze described the premise, its mechanisms do seem to parallel to some extent the ecosystem of a coral reef. They create interactions so interwoven and so organic that they must have been intentionally designed. The player interaction here is so brutal, it is clinical. There is a depth present nearly as boundless as the sea, and these concepts are all encapsulated in a cohesive set of mechanisms. Marvelous. Mm. Yeah. Pretty much gives the wide range of how people feel about this game, I guess. Yeah, there, there's not a whole lot of middle of the road. I know. Yeah. There, there, there's a little bit, but it's um, strong feelings on both sides of this. Which I, I would much more rather have a game be polarizing than right down the middle because then the game is you know saying something right it, otherwise it's milk toast right exactly all right so summary what you got sir you're you're the guest you go first so when i found out that i was going to get to be your guest host for this episode and found out that it was reef encounter i was like okay reef encounter i've played that before uh and then i tried to play it again and then i watched more videos on it, and then I thought more about the game. And it's kind of a brain worm of a game where the more I think about it and the more I experience it, the the deeper into the depths uh, of the game that I get into. And it, it, it creates... <sighs> It's hard to describe for me. It's it's similar to other games where the more I think about them, the more I just want to play them more. And I have not yet grown tired of it. It's not one of those games that I'm always going to choose to play, but I, I can't tell you why. But it's always going to be a game that I enjoy when I play it. And definitely because of the, the punishing nature that can be of your own decisions or manipulating other players or the timing or the investment side of the game. All of that really blends into a really enjoyable under two hours of a game and the fact that it has this theme which i think it pulls off well with the ecosystem the game really does feel like an underwater ecosystem with how things interact with each other i think getting all of that into under two hours is really pretty fast pretty fascinating with especially the light rule book i would say the, the minimal rules that you have to teach an encounter in the game fair enough i think that's well put for me I think this is Richard Breeze's masterpiece. I know a lot of people, and they are not wrong, feel very strongly that Keyflower is mm. his masterpiece, which Keyflower is also a fantastic game. But to me, for all of the reasons that you just summed up, the fact that the theme is there, it mm -hmm. really is the circle of life. It really is a ecosystem, vibrant, breathing, living under the sea, and just how brutal nature can be. But it also has that tinge of stock investment and mm -hmm. market manipulation that I absolutely love in board games. But also with what I feel is a very poignant and very strong theme. Now, I, I've always said that a game doesn't have to have a good theme or a theme period to be an enjoyable game as long as the mechanisms are tight and well done. But when you do have a unique theme or something that just grabs a player and that can only add to the experience, and that absolutely is the case here, there is so much going on within this game and there are so many different little battlefields within the battlefield that is Reef Encounter that I never tire of this game. 
And for me, this is the pinnacle of what Richard Brees has come up with. Mm -hmm. And that's not to lessen his other games. I just think that Reef Encounter is that special. So this being the only Richard Brees game I've ever played, you're telling me not to go out and play the other ones? No, no, not not at all. all. No, Uh, Keyflower, I think, is phenomenal. Okay. Um, Both both of these games reside in my top 50. Okay. Uh, I I definitely would highly recommend checking out uh, for sure both of those and then going from there. Um, Mm -hmm. I I also own a handful of others based on reputation. Um, I know there's Key Market, which I have played, which is a really enjoyable game that was out of print for forever, which is uh, going to be coming back out here soon, hopefully. And then there is uh, Key uh, Cathedral, Cathedral, I think is how it's called. Um, yeah. Which I own based on reputation. I still have not been able to get that to the table. Some of the more recent games I don't feel are as strong as those, mm-hmm. as Reef Encounter and uh, uh, Keyflower. But yeah, I think those are generally accepted as the top two. And a lot of people are going to argue that. Uh, uh, Keyflower is his best game, which I I, I won't fault people for. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And for those that don't know, and I'm going to get which one exactly it is is wrong, probably, but it's either Keytown or Keydom is actually the very first worker placement game in history. Oh, really? And uh, I saw a eBay auction of Keydom, Keytown, and one other. And I think it went for somewhere around 2,500 euros. Um, needless to say, I'm not, I, I've never played them. Yeah. I've never seen them. But it is. I'm trying to give credit where credit is due. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people consider Kalis as the grandfather of worker placement games. However, technically, it's either Keytown or Keydom is officially the first worker placement game. So kudos to Mr. Breeze for that. Interesting. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. Well, there you go. And yeah, new wrinkle in your brain. So great time for a rating. Uh, We rate on a one to six scale. One is burn it with fire. Six is hall of fame. There are no half numbers. You're either above or below the median point. Um, Usually for me, once we hit four and above, I'm going to consider owning the game and going from there. So you being my guest, Zach, where would you, have this fall for you for me this is a game that i will choose to play happily but it will never be my first choice because you know if if time and player count were no question there would be other games ahead of this but i would always be happy to choose this if we do only have three or four players under two hours so i would rate it a four okay i i think that's a fair point uh to me this is a hall of fame game this okay. is, uh, it's not without flaws. I'll be honest. My number one game of all time, right? Oh, for the longest time was Through the Ages. Mm-hmm. And when I did my review of it, um, I pointed out its its flaws, and it does have some. And Age of Steam is now my number one game. It's not without flaws there as well. I've yet mm-hmm. to encounter a perfect game. I don't think I ever will. But that doesn't mean that it's not a Hall of Fame game. For me, I enjoy a game with a little bit of rough edges and for everything that I said throughout the review, as well as the summary, I think sums up why I think this is such a special, memorable and just amazing game and design. So I absolutely rated a six and hats off to uh, Richard Breeze on 
a game that is, to me, stood the test of time and uh, deserves its Hall of Fame ranking as far as yeah. I see it. Yeah, it's always awesome to look back at these older games and see how much they've influenced today, like Roads and Boats coming out in 1999, and that still feels like a fresh game. This one coming out in 2004 still feels fresh. A lot of those older games are classics for a reason. Yep, exactly. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, we recently talked about Puerto Rico and everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, these games... Uh, Kalis just mentioned that they're classics for a reason, right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it just goes to show that I'm grateful for the amazing designers and developers and publishers who, who help put all of this stuff out so that we can enjoy these amazing games. And I mean, and for the modern games, do they hold up? We don't know. Yeah. But I know that there's a number of games that you and I, and we've talked about a number of them on this show, PAX Premier Second Edition, City of the Big Shoulders, Pipeline, and and possibly a game like Crystal Palace or whatnot, that, mm -hmm. you know, games that we're super excited about and that we thoroughly enjoy, not to mention the multitude of 18xx games out there. Do these hold up? I don't know, but if if one of them does from this year... I think that's that's awesome. That keeps yeah. that tradition going of amazing designs and mm -hmm. keeps this hobby growing and progressing forward. It's a good time to be a gamer. Absolutely. All right. So that is our review of Richard Breeze's, in my opinion, classic Reef Encounter. So, Zach, good job, dude. That was fun. Well, thank you. I had a great time. Yeah, that was really, really enjoyable. Uh the show went a little bit longer than I expected, but partially because there were so many BGG comments that I wanted to share. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I I thank you for that. That was that was pretty uh, enjoyable. To yeah, say that's the least. one of my favorite parts of the preparing for the podcast is going through and scrolling through pages and pages and pages of comments and mm -hmm. run the gamut from tens to ones and everywhere in between and just finding little nuggets. Uh, I enjoy that process. And hopefully folks do uh, that they it, because otherwise it's me and whoever my guest host is. Right. It's just our mm -hmm. opinion and whatever. And this way they kind of get both sides of it, um, whether or not we like a game or not hearing both. Every game has its proponents and it's uh, and it's naysayers. So I think having a balanced uh, view on it like that helps. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun for me. So you being a patron, obviously you're in Slack. Uh, but yes. uh, where else can people uh, can people uh, reach out to you if they want to give you props on the review or just touch base if they're in the Dayton area? Well, first, very proud patron of all the hard work that you do. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I'm on Slack. I'm Zach from Ohio. Very creative name for my Slack channel. Uh, I'm also Zach from Ohio on Instagram. I don't have Twitter or anything else like that. I know it's weird for me being of my age demographic, not having all those social medias. But uh, I, being a teacher makes it a little difficult to dabble oh, in totally. all those. I, I yeah. can only imagine. I've heard from other teachers that they tend to stay away from a lot of social yeah. media. Yeah, so if you want to hit me up on Slack or Instagram, they're both Zach from Ohio, and I, you know, would love some feedback and talk to more people about great games. And if you're in the Dayton area... Oh, yeah, if you're in Dayton, uh, D20, the board game bar with characters every Wednesday night we meet up and play Epic Loot in Centerville. Fantastic, fantastic store. One of the best I've ever been to. And uh, if you want to get into 18xx games... Hit me up, and we will definitely make sure that you can join us and play some time. All right, awesome. And as as Zach alluded to, if you want to support the show, 
Uh, you can go to pledgehc.com, support the show there. Uh, spread the word of the show, whether it be on social media, word of mouth, to your friend, online, anywhere, doesn't matter. Uh, spread the word. If you guys are enjoying what we're doing, uh, give us give us some feedback. You can go to heavycardboard.com and resp- uh, leave a comment there, or you can always shoot me an email. I'm Heavy Cardboard on Twitter, uh, Edward Euler on Facebook, or Heavy Cardboard on Facebook. And as well, you can shoot an email, contact at heavycardboard.com. So that's it. That's a wrap. I will be back fortnightly with another episode. So that is 137 in the books. Thank you again to Zach. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I enjoyed it, man, and definitely going to have to have you back to talk uh, to talk some more 18xx uh, when I get a little bit more experience with some of the titles. Sound Absolutely, good? yeah. Well, come on down to Dayton. We'll show you how it's done. That might just happen. Might All right, good. That. All good. Right. Take care, Zach. Take care, everybody. See ya. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>